You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. If you are new with us or you haven't been with us in a while, I just want to let you know that for the last few weeks, we've been looking at the Holy Spirit. Specifically, we've been trying to understand who the Spirit is, what He does, and why He continues to matter so much today. My aim today is really quite simple. My hope is to build on much of what Pastor Chris has been laying for the last few weeks and take much of what he's talked about and ask the question, How has the Spirit continued to sustain His work through the 2,000-year history of the church? In other words, today's sermon is really going to be like part Bible study, part history lesson, and part theological reflection, which is exciting if you're into that. And if it's not, don't worry, it's a relatively short sermon. So, didn't get the laugh at all. Wow, (laughs) such a dud. I was so proud of that. So proud of that. Well, that's what you get. Oh, well. Disappointment. Okay, with that, with that, here's what we're going to do. In order to best understand how the Spirit has worked in and through the church, we need to go back to the foundation of the church. We need to go back to the beginning when the Spirit was first poured out on God's people. We describe that day as Pentecost because it took place 50 days after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And now Luke, in the book of Acts chapter 2, Luke describes the events of that day like this. Luke says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all, meaning all 120 believers, they were all gathered together in one place. Suddenly, the sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of the believers were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Okay. I don't know how you read the Bible. But when I read the Bible, I try to imagine it. This is one of those sections that's super easy to shut it, walk away, and go, that was cool. Hold on. you got to get this picture. Okay. You have 120 people, roughly the size of this room gathered in a house. And as you can imagine, they're probably not all in one room. Some are down in like the kitchen area making food. You got the kids running around in the backyard chasing a goat or something. You got the older people kind of sitting there chatting about life. Maybe you got the couple praying for each other in the corner. Maybe you got somebody that's picking the apostle's brain and being like, so did you guys ever tell fart jokes around the fire like with Jesus? Was he into that kind of thing? Like you got to imagine the scene. And in the midst of this scene, all of a sudden, this violent sounding wind, whoosh, consumes the room, followed by, you know, just something a little less dramatic, massive amounts of fire. Flames of fire that consume the people, causing them to then speak in languages they've never spoke before as they declare the glory of God. Guys, that's insane. How cool is that? And so what happens, we're told, after this is the disciples then spill into the streets. 
They're still speaking and praising God in all these different languages that they're now learning all of a sudden through the power of the Spirit. And the people of Jerusalem are completely dumbfounded by what they see. Some are just amazed at what they see, Peter t- or Luke tells us. They're just in awe of it, and they go, man, this has to be the work of God. Others are just convinced these Christians are just drunk. So then Peter, we're told, Peter stands up and boldly, in the midst of these crowds, the same crowds that 50 days earlier voted to kill Jesus, were chanting for the death of Jesus, Peter stands up bold through the power of the Holy Spirit and says, first and foremost, no, they're not drunk. Peter thought that was very important to clarify. Don't know why he led with that one, but he leads with that. Second, he says, no, what you see is the unfolding of God's long-awaited promise. Peter says, this is the day of the Lord. This is the day the prophets spoke of long ago when they said God would do something unique where God would dwell with his people in a way he's never dwelt with them before. Specifically, Peter goes on to quote the, the, Joel, uh, the prophet Joel, Joel chapter two, that talks about God's spirit coming and dwelling with all of his people. See, up until that point, the spirit was only reserved for the select few, the occasional prophet, the occasional priest, the occasional king. But now God's spirit is available to all people who trust in him, all people who confess Christ as their Lord and their Savior. Peter boldly stands up and proclaims this in front of this massive amount of crowds. And we're told that 3,000 people on that day are cut to the heart. They're convicted of what they have done and they come to faith. And what starts as a movement of 120 people overnight balloons into a movement of 3,000 And as you know, that's only the end of chapter 2. As the story continues to go, we discover that all of Jerusalem eventually hears about Jesus. And then it spills into the hill country of Judea. Then it spills into their neighboring nation, Samaria. And eventually we find out that it goes to Ethiopia, down to southern Africa. We find that it goes into Asia, over into Greece. Eventually it makes its way to Rome. In other words, this thing catches fire. And 2,000 years later, as we look back on the history of the church, we quickly discover what started as a group of 120 people has ballooned into the world's largest religion, a religion that, is on, that spans every continent and within every border of every country on this planet. It's an incredible story. And yet, if you're remotely familiar with our story... If you're remotely familiar with the history of the church, you have to stop and wonder, how on earth are we still around? See, we have tried our darndest. That's right, I'm pulling out the big words here. (laughs) Darndest. Darndest to thwart the work of the Spirit from the beginning of the church. Both intentionally and unintentionally, humanity has sought to stop the work of God through the church, and yet the church continues persist. How is that possible? What's going on with that? Well, interestingly enough, in the book of Acts, there's a theologian, a Jewish theologian, who makes a really interesting observation. And it's an observation that isn't out of the mouth of a Christian. In fact, we don't have any evidence that suggests that this man ever actually became a Christian, but as we see, he's highly respected, highly regarded by Christians. The theologian I'm talking about is a Jewish man named Gamaliel, or Gamaliel, however you pronounce it, and I'm not great at that. 
And Gamaliel, we're told, was one of the greatest theologians of his day. And his day is roughly 25 to 50 AD. And so if you're keeping track of the timeline here, this is the death of Jesus into the early stages of the church. Gamaliel was the man. He's called Gamaliel the Elder. And in fact, he was so revered by his own people that one scholar wrote, his obituary reads this, that when he died, it was as if the glory of the law ceased. And purity and abstinence died along with him. In other words, he was so influential that the church recognized it as well as the Jews. And he continues to go down in history as this respected man. Well, as I said, Gamaliel also comes up a couple times in the book of Acts. Once in chapter 22, where the apostle Paul says Gamaliel was his personal mentor and teacher in the faith. In other words, Paul, when he's trying to explain his Jewish credentials, is like, I went to Jewish Harvard. I studied under Gamaliel. But also we find Gamaliel pops up in Acts chapter 5. And it's in Acts chapter 5 where Gamaliel gives this incredibly insightful observation. An incredibly insightful observation that is not only relevant for his day, but also for our day. An observation that you and I need to consider as we contemplate the 2,000-year history of the church. See, to help you understand the context, what happens here is this. As the church continued to rapidly expand in Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem, specifically the Jewish leadership, were threatened by the explosive growth of the church. It threatened to destabilize the status quo. It threatened to take away their power, and they needed to get a handle on it. So the Jewish leadership controlled by this thing called the Sanhedrin or the, the court, they arrest all the apostles one day and they put them on trial. And as they put them on trial, they demand, because remember, this is the exact same court that put Jesus on trial. This is the exact same court that condemned Jesus to death. And we're only a few months out from that. And so they're trying to get a handle on this Jesus thing before it gets out of control. And so they tell him, you can't keep talking about this Jesus guy. Shut your mouth. I don't want to hear anything more about it. To which the apostles respond, yeah, we don't listen to you. We listen to God. And if you're ever given us the choice, listen to you, listen to God, we're going with God every time. Well, as you can imagine, this just went over so well. No, the people erupted. The Jewish leadership was ticked. And so anger just erupts in this entire thing. And the Sanhedrin is full of several hundred people. Okay, so this is, this is a big church meeting gone wrong, if you can imagine that. Well, eventually, Gamaliel stands up in the midst of this chaos. He silences the room. He kicks the apostles out, and he addresses his Jewish colleagues. And as he addresses his Jewish colleagues, he begins to go through the last 60 or 70-year history of the Jews. And he talks about how in that 60 to 70-year history, Judaism has seen numerous Messiah figures, numerous people who claim to be the long-awaited hero of Israel. And he goes, just like all those guys, Jesus is no different just like all those fake Messiah figures, they all got a following, but guess what? All those dudes died. And when they died, their disciples scattered. So with that, Gamaliel then gives this incredibly insightful reflection. His advice is this. It comes out of chapter 5, verses 38 and 39. He says, my advice is this. Colleagues, Jewish colleagues, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, I guarantee you it will fail. But, but if it is from God, you will not only be able to stop these men, you will only find yourselves fighting against God himself. 
I'm telling you, that's a brilliant insight. That's genius right there. See, what Gamaliel understood was that fads come and go, right? They're here one day, they're gone the next, but the work of God, this brilliant Jewish theologian understood that the work of God was unrelenting. The work of God was unceasing. It was unstoppable. And if you tried to fight against the work of God, you would lose every single time. Now, we stand at an interesting point in history, right? I mean, we're 2,000 years removed from Gamaliel's advice, but in the moment, Gamaliel's advice is actually wise counsel to his Jewish colleagues. The church is at best a few months old, maybe a couple years, right? It's very early in the infancy of the church. And so his advice is, guys, let's just sit back and see. If this is of God, we can't stop it. If it's of men, it's going to fall apart in no time. But we are 2,000 years removed. We can look back on 2,000 years of history and we soon begin to discover that Gamaliel's words ring just as loud and true as they did 2,000 years ago. If this church thing was merely a human endeavor, if it was an act solely of humanity, it should have failed long ago. And yet the church not only survives, the church is continuing to thrive. And you're going, well, hold on, there's massive decline in Europe, there's massive decline in North America. Okay, fine. But if you look in Asia, if you look in Africa, if you look at South America, the church is exploding. The church is not in decline in any way, shape, or form. The church is continuing to grow. It's quite incredible. But I don't remember why. You caught that. Uh, I know. So the church has continued, continued to grow and not just survive, but to thrive. And that, again, is despite humanity's greatest efforts to thwart the work of the Spirit. I mean, think about it. From its inception, the church has been under attack, both from within and from without. I mean, in the later letters of the New Testament, we discover that false teachers had wormed their way into the church and were bringing about corruption. But also, if you keep following church history, you get to the second and third century and you discover there were Greek critics constantly ripping down the church for the beliefs that they held, declaring that the Christians were atheists of all things, that they were having these love feasts and bloodbaths, and it was gross, the stuff that they were accused of. But it didn't stop in the second and third century. Egotistical, corrupt popes completely wormed their way into the system, corrupted the Catholic Church for centuries. That's a given statement of fact. But even more than that, you realize in the last two, three hundred years, modern biblical criticism has done everything it can to undermine the authenticity and veracity of Scripture. Not even that, you keep adding on to what liberal institutions are doing through their so-called philosophical discoveries or scientific discoveries, and you realize the church is constantly under attack. And as I said, it's not just from the outside. In fact, I would argue that the greatest attacks, the greatest threats to the church have always come from within. The greatest threats to the church have always been Christians who instead of following the Spirit have constantly chosen to follow their own flesh. Follow their own ego, as we like to say. They like, instead of following and submitting to the Spirit, they like to follow their own ways. Instead of following and submitting to God, we like to play God. And whenever the church likes to play God, whenever the church likes to follow its own ego and its own ways, the only things that happen are things like the Crusades. 
or our justification for the Crusades. Guys, can we stop defending the Crusades? I I don't know what, I, I had this conversation again this week. Somebody defended the Crusades. Come on! But not even the Crusades. Enslavement, slavery of one another, and our defense of slavery. That is not about submitting to the Spirit. It's all about us. It's all about our egos, what we want, not the betterment of other people, or the way in general we treat those unlike ourselves, those different from us, and the way we then justify our treatment of them because, oh, it's sinful, oh, it's wrong, oh, it makes me uncomfortable, I don't like watching it on TV. Guys, whenever the church follows its own ways, its own flesh, its own ego, Over the moving of the Spirit, we do stupid, harmful things that stain the church's record. Paul, in Romans chapter 8, puts it this way. Paul says that you can only follow the flesh, or you can only follow the Spirit, or you can only follow the flesh. And for Paul, as you look into his use of the word sarks, his use of the word flesh, it's always talking about this ego, the me-first attitude that exists within every single one of us, that me-first attitude that is at the root and the bottom of every single stupid decision you and I have ever made, the root of every sin humanity has ever produced. The root of it is always, I know best. I have a good idea. I'm going to do what I think is better than what God wants me to do. Every single time we do this, it hurts the church. A modern example of this, contemporary example, is seen in the worship wars that continue to exist within our churches. Everything from the type of music we listen to, the type of instruments, whether we're using bells or we're using drums or we're using an organ or we're using a piano or a guitar or whether we go back to the good old Gregorian chant days to the, the, the type of outfits the pastor wears or the way the pastor wears the outfit. I tell you every Sunday I'm critiqued on my outfit. Enough, please. I'm leaving so you can keep critiquing Chris, but guys... <laughs> Get over it, okay? We're not going to change our wardrobe. We're trying here. We're just pathetic. Blame our wives, okay? No. (laughs) Do the stupid things pastors say to get a cheap joke. But let's keep going on this. Think of the worship wars. Everything from the way we receive communion to how often we receive communion to the time of day we worship to the way our buildings are structured. You name it. We love to argue about things. And the problem is, if you look at this, all these silly fights have done is divide us and prevent us from stepping in to the mission of God through the church. All it does is it hinders and prevents us from following God. Guys, hear me on this. We all have preferences, and there's nothing wrong with preferences. Of course we have preferences. I have a preference about the way I dress. You have a preference about the way I dress. Okay? We all have preferences about the type of music. We all have preferences about everything. Preferences are not bad. What's wrong is when we allow our preferences to go before our ability to submit to the Spirit. When we say, God, I see you doing this. I see you leading this way. I see you trying to accomplish this, but I'm not willing to go there because I don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable. 
I'm not willing to give up what makes me comfortable to go where you're clearly leading. I'm going to put a barrier between you and me. And I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go find another church that meets my needs rather than this church that's kind of pushing me to deal with some of the things in my life. I don't like that. I'm going to go somewhere else. Guys, this is the most damaging thing that could ever happen to the church. The 2,000-year history of the church continues to prove this time and time again that when we submit to ourselves, when we follow the flesh, we stymie the work of the Spirit. We don't stop the work of the Spirit. Despite us, God continues to work, but we do slow it down. We get in the way. More than that, we miss out on what he's going to do. But the truly incredible thing, the good news that you and I need to hear today is this that no egotistical corrupt Christian, nor any catchy religious philosophy, nor scientific discovery, no tyrannical regime who's out to squash Christianity, has ever or will ever squelch the work of God in the world. There is nothing you and I can do that can prevent God from working, because as Gamaliel rightly pointed out, the church's very existence is not a human activity. The church's very existence is not of human origin. It is God himself who sustains and works through the lives of his people to accomplish his good purposes in and through the church. We're just the tagalongs. We get to go with the ride. We can complain the whole time or we can play in it. But here's the thing, when we play in it, when you and I submit to the Spirit, when we are willing to surrender our ego, when we are willing to surrender our preferences, when we are willing to submit and say, Lord, what do you want to do in this world? I don't know if you realize this, but the church has, it's, it's beautiful and powerful. For the last 2,000 years, if you look at our history, the church has been on the forefront of major societal advancements from the beginning of the church's existence. I mean, consider some of these. Where are they? There they are. From its inception, the church is, has been the single greatest proponent of human rights the world has ever seen because of its con consistent insistence that all people, regardless of their age, regardless of their gender, regardless of their race, regardless of their socioeconomic status, all people are equal in the eyes of God. All people are made in the image of God. All people deserve worth, value, and dignity. And so, from the care of the poor, to the needy, to the outcasts, to the building of soup kitchens, hospitals, hospice care facilities, orphanages, the church has constantly been on the forefront of restoring human dignity in the world. If you want to look back at our history, no other organization, no other group of people has ever been so remotely effective as the church has. That was clearly not of us. That is a work of the Spirit. But let's keep going. Because it's not just the poor and the outcasts and the needy who have, who have benefited from the work of the Spirit in the church. Do you realize that the church has also been at the forefront of improving, uh, uh, how did I phrase this, the status of women in society? I don't know if you've ever stopped and thought about this, but Tim Keller, in his book, uh, Reasons for God, I thought it summed this up way better than I could. So let me show you what Keller said in the midst of this. It was extremely common in the Greco-Roman world to throw out new female infants to die from exposure. And the reason was because of the low status of women in society. You still see this in places like China. 
when they were under the one-child policy, you still hear stories like this. The church, however, forbade its members to do so. Greco-Roman society also saw no value in an unmarried woman, and therefore it was illegal for a widow to go more than two years without remarrying. You see the problems that would set up? If you're forced into a marriage. But Christianity was the first religion not to force widows to marry. They were supported financially. We see this in the book of Acts. And they were honored within the community so that they were not under great pressure to remarry if they didn't want to. But it goes on from there. I don't know if you go back and you look at the way Jesus treated women. It's an incredibly fascinating study. If you want to go see it, look at the way, specifically in the Gospel of Luke, you're going to see it most clearly. But Jesus, from the beginning, constantly elevates the status of women. He treats them as equals. In fact, he seems to admire women throughout that gospel, and he always kind of like bashes the men in that one, but he always uplifts the women. This was very countercultural. See, you and I, we're removed from this, right? We look back at 2,000 years of progress, and we go, we still have so far to go. And you're right, we do. We have a long ways to go. But you need to understand all the vast improvements that have taken place have all, can all be followed back to Jesus Christ and the workings of the Spirit in through the church to raise up women into positions of leadership. Again, that's not to say there hasn't been moments where fleshly men have suppressed women in horrible ways. Of course, that's part of our legacy. We have to own it. But if you look at the big picture, the church has clearly, or the Spirit has clearly been working in this way. But let's keep going. Did you know the church, with its emphasis on making sure everybody could read the Bible, has benefited society as a whole by being the single greatest leader in education the world has ever seen? Did you know that? Interesting fact, all but one of the first 123 colleges in colonial America were Christian institutions. And while many of these universities have lost their Christian identities, it's interesting to read their founding statements. Look at Harvard's founding statement. You may not have known this was the purpose of Harvard's existence. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is first and foremost to know God and second to know Jesus, which is eternal life. This is the foundational document of why Harvard University was founded along with 122 other Christian universities in the United States. And it's not just the United States. If you know this, if you're familiar at all with history, you're going to realize that the church has constantly been on the forefront of education around the world, raising up people to go to, or putting, putting uh, languages into written um, script so that people could then read the Bible. And you all know the advancements that that then has or the effect that that would have on societies as a whole. And we could keep going on and on and on about the influence the Spirit has had on the arts, on music, on literature, on ethics, on families, on child-rearing, on marriages, on government structures, on architecture. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. It's beautiful and powerful what happens when the church surrenders to the Spirit, when the church is willing to say, Lord, what do you have for us today? Lord, how do we best honor you? And the church is willing to surrender its ego and allowing itself to say, Father, I want to follow and allow the Spirit to come and take hold. It's incredible. It's beautiful. The amazing thing is, if you look at the church today through the guidance and the continual sustainment of the Holy Spirit, you can see that the church is still on the move. 
The Spirit is still working to accomplish incredible things, whether it's building freshwater wells in Africa, whether it's uh, fighting the sex slave industry, whether it's um, continual better improvement of women in society. The church is constantly on the forefront of those areas. Through the church, the world has been and is continually immensely blessed. On this Reformation Day, that's what we gather to celebrate. The continual work of the Spirit. Reformation wasn't about something that just happened 500 years ago. It's an ongoing perpetual activity of the Spirit, an ongoing perpetual invitation of the Holy Spirit that you and I are invited to partake in to surrender ourselves, to lay our wills down before him and say, Lord, have your way with me. And when we do it, it's beautiful. It's incredible. The truly amazing thing is, if you look back at history, I think what the 2,000-year history of the church teaches me more than anything else, it's that when we are willing to submit to the Spirit, we're invited to play in God's ongoing kingdom building in the world. See, what we see from the story of Scripture all the way from the very beginning is that God didn't have to use us. Rather, God wants to use us. God invites us into his work. God invites us to play. Even though we like to mess the whole thing up, we like to try and screw it up, he's like, no, 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 I still want you to play. I want you to play a role. That's an incredible opportunity. So I guess my great takeaway, my great encouragement, and you may be like, Really, that's the best thing you came up with today? Aren't we already here? My best encouragement is this. Don't give up on the church. Don't give up on the church. I know we're not perfect. As we've already said, the church is full of people like you and me. Of course we're screwed up. But regardless of the fact that the church is full of broken sinners, more important than anything else, as Gamaliel rightly points out, The church is sustained and continually propelled by the spirit of the living God. A God through whom all things are possible. And so church, the great takeaway for us of how do we continue to follow the spirit is this. Really, it's two simple steps. It's not that hard. Well, that's not true. It's incredibly hard to follow the spirit. It is hard. Because in order to follow the Spirit, you have to deny the flesh. Jesus, Jesus likes to ratchet it up and take it to that next level. Do you know what Jesus says? If you want to be my disciple, here's what you got to do. You got to daily deny yourself. You have to die. You have to pick up your cross and follow me. You have to die to yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. I don't know about you, but when you hear that, you don't think flowers and rainbows and skittles all the way down the road. Life is only going to lavish you in good things. No, because often following the Spirit, following the Spirit's lead means we're allowing Him to take us into places that are incredibly uncomfortable. We're allowing the Spirit to push us beyond our preferences. More than that, we're allowing the Spirit to take us into places our mom said, you don't go there. But while it's incredibly hard to follow the Spirit, it's not impossible. In fact, it's really just two steps. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Christianity as a whole can be summed up in two very simple steps. Receive and share. Receive and share. In order to receive, though, you have to admit you have need. In other words, if you want to follow the Spirit, the very first step, the very first thing you have to do is humbly go before God and confess, maybe you don't have it all figured out. 
you have to humbly admit, God, I need help. God, maybe my ways, my opinions, my preferences are not the best. Maybe somebody else has a better idea than I do. Maybe there is something you have for my life, Lord, that I am not seeing right now. It starts with humility. It's a simple prayer, Lord, help. Here's something for you to do. All of you are going to eat after this, I hope. If you're not going to eat after this, go eat. There you go. Pastor told you to go eat. But while you're eating, while you're having food, I want you to do a couple things. I want you, especially if you've been a member of this church for a while, I want you to reflect on the last couple years. And I want you to ask yourself, where have you seen the Spirit moving most effectively the last two years of our church? If you're new to this church, you haven't been with us in a while, I just want you to ask, where do you see the church global? Where have you seen the most effective movements of the Spirit? In America, in the church global, what do you identify as those most effective things? In our church specifically, as you look back one or two years, where have you seen excitement? Where have you seen fruit, right? Jesus says you will know the efficacious nature, that's my word, not his, by their fruit. Where do you see fruit in the ministries of our church? I want you to ask yourself that question first. Second, I want you to say, where do those areas where the Spirit is leading push against your preferences? Where do they make you uncomfortable? Where does it rub you the wrong way? You're like, but I don't want to give that up. I don't want to work with middle schoolers. See you, Eric. <laughs> I don't want to. I like this. I like the sleep in. I like this style of community. I like, I like, whatever. I like this. I don't want to do that ministry. Where do you see the Spirit moving in our church? Where do you see that rubbing your own preferences? And then this leads us to the next step. I'm telling you. It's hard, but not impossible. It takes humility, followed by bold acts of stepping out in faith. Bold acts of being willing to say, Lord, I'm going to trust you. Bold acts of being willing to say, Lord, you said it, I'm going to do it. In other words, boldness that when you read the word, you put the word into action. It's not about just reading it, shutting it, walking down, thinking how life goes on your own. But saying, Lord, you said I should turn the other cheek even when I'm the one being wronged. How do I do that at work? How do I do that with my spouse? But even more than that, it takes bold acts of faith, being willing to step into things that are beyond your comfort zone, past your preferences, into things that make you uncomfortable, and you're able to say, Lord, I don't like this necessarily, but I believe you're going there, and I want to be where you are. Lord, I, I don't want to hinder the progress of the church. I don't want to hinder what you're doing in Huntington Beach. I want to follow you. It takes humility, Lord help, and it takes bold acts of faith. See, Christianity, I told you, it's incredibly simple. You receive, you share. You receive, you share. Lord, I need you. I take what you've given me, and I step into it. Not easy, but not impossible. My brothers and sisters, as we reflect on the work of the church, specifically the work of the Holy Spirit through the church over the last 2,000 years, we continue to remember the Spirit's not done with us. 
The Spirit continued to invite us into an ever-growing, ever-richening, ever-more beautiful and powerful relationship with Him. The Spirit says, I want to take you and continually reform you, not into your image, into my image. The question is, are we willing to take hold of His invitation? Are we willing to say, Lord, I surrender all. Lord, here I am, send me. Lord, have your way with me. Amen.